This is Adele Waldman, and you're listening to Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Adele Waldman with original composition by Haley Johnson. And be sure to stick around until after the credits to get a behind-the-scenes look into how this episode was made. The light was dim and reddish at the bar Hannah chose on Myrtle, once known as Murder, Avenue. The music, an early 1990s alternative album distantly familiar to Nate, wasn't too loud. A large exposed pipe ran along the ceiling. Tables were topped with old-fashioned desk lamps, an upscale touch in a place that was on the whole studiously dingy, a dark, heavily curtained wannabe dive. As Jason said, you can tell a real dive by its bathrooms. If they don't reek, it's no dive, no matter how much graffiti is on the walls. Hannah arrived a few minutes after eight, apologizing for being late. I have no excuse, she said as she slid onto the barstool. I live just down the street. Nate caught a whiff of coconut shampoo. While Hannah deliberated between a Chianti and a Malbec, with her head tilted away from his and her lips slightly puckered, Nate noticed she looked a lot like a girl he knew in high school. Emily Covens had been in 10th grade when he was a senior. He could still picture Emily sitting outside on the strip of grass between the upper school building and the cafeteria. Her long, dirty blonde hair, shiny like Hannah's, but lighter and less auburn, had a bit of string braided into it. And she wore bunches of silver bracelets and rings with colorful stones. Her sandals sat beside her, her small feet poked out from under a long, flowery skirt. Nate hadn't generally been drawn to hippie chicks, but for months he nursed a tender longing for little Emily Covens. Thanks. No, I'm good. Hannah murmured thanks as the bartender set down her glass. Nate asked her about the neighborhood. I love it. Of course, the last time my parents visited, they saw a drug deal go down in front of my building. She smiled as she combed a hand through a smooth curtain of hair. They're not so keen on it. Nate continued to study her face for hints of Emily. The resemblance came and went, depending on the angle. After a moment, Hannah's smile began to falter. Nate realized it was his turn to say something. Mine dislike all of Brooklyn. Hannah cocked her head. How come? With his thumb and forefinger, Nate rotated his glass on the bar. Even the son of my mother's chiropractor lives in Manhattan. He lifted his gaze to meet Hannah's. And he, as my mother likes to point out, didn't go to Harvard. (laughs) Nice. They get that I moved here when I was broke. They can't figure out why I stay. I told them I like it and that all my friends live here. And I told them the whole publishing industry lives in Brooklyn. Hannah was still smiling. And? And I fell into a trap. My dad says, See, it's just like I always told you. No one makes money writing except for Stephen King. And as far as I know, he doesn't live in Brooklyn. (laughs) Hannah smiled and with a jaunty little toss of her chin, flipped the hair off her face. Nate was back in high school. History class, Mrs. Davidoff's gravelly voice describing FDR's battles with the judiciary, as Nate gazed out the window at Emily. 
He couldn't remember when he'd last thought of Emily Coven's. In this dark bar, where the smell of cigarettes wafted from people's clothes and a pink neon martini glass glowed sullenly on the wall, he remembered not only Emily, but what the world had felt like to him then. He could see what he hadn't seen at the time, how much his thrilling and uniquely angst-free crush had been bound up with youth, with the particular headiness of a Harvard-bound senior in the months of April and May, college and adulthood glimmering before him like rewards for good behavior. How naively he had believed what his teachers and school counselors told him about the joys of college. He didn't know then that the ability to feel the kind of sincere and unqualified longing he felt for Emily would pass from him, fall away like an outgrown skin. His current self was considerably more louche, buffeted by short-lived, largely prurient desires, his gratification he no longer believed would make him happy, at least not for long. I used to love this song. Hannah's voice brought him back to the present. Nate listened. It was from a different album than the one that had been playing earlier. Nate didn't recognize it. I listened to it all the time when I was in high school. Freshman year of college, too. She told him that she'd grown up in Ohio and had gone to a big public school, the kind where cheerleading was taken seriously. She took a sip of wine. You can imagine why punk seemed really cool. (laughs) Ohio, huh? Yep. She ran a finger along the seam of a cocktail napkin she'd folded into a triangle. Most of my friends from home are still in Cleveland. Maybe Chicago, if they were ambitious. She said she'd gone to Barnard on a whim and wound up staying in the city for journalism school. Nobody I know from home writes or does anything close. They have regular jobs at banks and insurance companies, things like that. She rested her chin on her palm. A thin silver bracelet slid down her arm and disappeared into the sleeve of her sweater. What about you? Did you feel remote from this world before you got here? Or is your family... Nate knew what she meant. Did I tell you what my father thinks of writing as a profession? (laughs) Uh... Nate was charmed by something he couldn't quite identify. A tone, perhaps. A sort of pervading archness. Now that he was alone with her, he found Hannah to be a little different than he'd expected. He'd formed an impression of her as the kind of cheerful, competent person one likes to have on hand at dinner parties or on camping trips. But she struck him as more interesting than that. I definitely didn't grow up in a fancy intellectual environment, but I was determined not to stay in Baltimore. I interned in D.C. one year, and I met kids whose parents were politicians and Washington Post columnists. I knew I wanted that what their parents had. I felt like if they had it, there was no reason I couldn't. What was it you wanted, exactly? Nate caught a glimpse of cleavage beneath the neckline of her loose-fitting v-neck t-shirt. He didn't have a game plan for the evening. He hadn't even made a conscious decision to ask her out. The day after he'd gotten her email, he'd simply been restless. In the same spirit that he flipped through stacks of takeout menus, he scrolled through the names on his phone, reaching the end, Eugene Wu, without seeing one that appealed to him. Everyone's shtick felt tired, overly familiar. Hannah offered, if nothing else, novelty. He wrote back to her, suggesting they continue the conversation in person. What did I want? You really want to know. I really want to know. He toyed with a whiskey-coated ice cube inside his mouth, pressing it against his cheek. He recalled old daydreams. A generically handsome, professorial man with a strong jaw sitting in a wood-paneled office, a line of students waiting out front, and a beautiful wife on the phone. 
Sometimes, the office wasn't wood paneled, but chrome and glass, with a secretary who patched his calls through, and a wall of windows opening onto the skyscrapers of New York. There was also a little hut in Africa, where he'd dispense antibiotics and teach the villagers to love Shakespeare. On the one hand, to do something interesting, and on the other, to be admired for it. Nate remembered something else, the belief that success was something that just happened to you, that you just did your thing, and if you were deserving, it was bestowed by the same invisible hand that ensured the deli would have milk to drink and sandwiches to buy. Wouldn't that be nice? Nate sometimes envied people less clear-sighted, people so seduced by success itself that their enthusiasm for successful people was wholly genuine. Nate knew perfectly well when he was currying favor, or trying to, and he was more than capable of feeling dirty about it. I used to think... But he didn't know how to finish. He began fiddling with one of the buttons on his shirt. But it's more complicated than that. Uh, the whole thing, ambition and writing, uh, uh, more sordid. <laughs> like him, Hannah was a freelance writer, but Nate was pretty sure she wasn't as far along yet. He remembered that she was trying to get a book contract. Sold your soul lately. Nah, only in bits and pieces. Oh, lucky you. I've tried. No takers. No, they'll come. When Hannah got up to use the bathroom, she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head tilted slightly down, as if she were accustomed to rooms designed for shorter people. She was wearing a cardigan sweater over her t-shirt and jeans tucked into boots, a style that had reminded Nate of Wonder Woman when girls started adopting it en masse a year or two earlier. Her outfit seemed almost deliberately unsexy, but she had what seemed like a nervous habit of pulling the two sides of her sweater more tightly closed, which had the effect of making her not insubstantial breasts more prominent. As she walked away, the long sweater prevented him from getting a fresh read on her ass. Want another? Nate swiveled his head. The bartender, a young woman, was staring at him. She wasn't so much pretty as stylish, with a slightly beakish nose and pouty lips. Her dark hair was separated into two long ponytails that hung on either side of her face. Uh, yeah, thanks. He nodded at Hannah's empty glass. I had another Chianti for her. She was drinking Malbec. Oh, mall back then. She leaned over the bar to scoop up Hannah's crumpled cocktail napkin. Her cleavage was frank and undisguised. The top few buttons of her plaid shirt were undone, and even though she had on a tank top underneath, it too was low cut. She glided off to the other end of the bar. While he and Hannah had been talking, more people had filtered in. The room swam with their long, swaying shadows. A disco ball cast roving splotches of red and blue on the walls of the long, narrow space. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. When Hannah returned, she glanced at her wine glass. Thanks. Next round is on me. Jason had a theory that girls who offer to pay on dates suffer from low self-esteem. They don't feel they deserve to be paid for. It's a sign there's something wrong with them. Nate wasn't sure he agreed. Sometimes it was just nice, only fair, especially if you weren't Jason, who had never been short on cash because he was, Nate was sure, on the receiving end of significant income supplements from his parents or grandparents. Not that he and Jason discussed such things openly. No one in their circle did. 
Jason would never go out with Hannah anyway. He was only interested in women who were very conventionally attractive, a preference he'd once defended on the grounds of social justice. If smart people only mated with smart people, class structures would ossify. There'd be a permanent underclass of stupid people. But when smart men mate with beautiful women, smart or not, you undermine that kind of rigid caste system. Dumb rich kids do everyone a favor by eroding any justification for birth-based privilege. Jason was a jackass. Still, the thought of his friend's appraisal. Jason would probably call Hannah a seven. Coworker material. Bothered Nate. He didn't like the idea of dating girls Jason wouldn't. That seemed wrong, since Nate was clearly the better person, more successful, as well as more deserving. This was not a helpful line of thinking. So what's your book proposal about? What? Oh, that. She began to adjust the folds of her cardigan. Class and college in America. It's kind of a history and analysis of a national obsession. The Ivy League is our own version of aristocracy. She nodded at him. Nice shirt, by the way. Nate looked down. He'd unbuttoned the top buttons of his Oxford. Underneath, he was wearing an old t-shirt. Just visible were the crimson-colored letters. (laughs) A-R-V. Fuck, Jason. Nate was having a good time. Uh, When does your proposal go out? Uh, I'm not finished yet. Hannah touched a hand to one of her earrings, a silver dangling thing. It's taking longer than I hoped. Well, it's a lot of work, and you want it to be as strong as possible. A moment later, he made a throwaway comment about how it's sad that so few people read these days. It's hard not to feel irrelevant in a world where a book that does really well sells maybe 100,000 copies. Even the lamest television show about time travel or killer pets would be canceled instantly if it did that badly. Oh, I don't know. I think it's vanity to want it both ways. You know, to want to write books because that's your thing, but to also want to be treated like a rock star. She held her wine glass rather elegantly, if precariously, by its stem, and nearly chin level. There was, about her manner now, a certain devil-may-care majesty, not quite of a piece with her earlier timidity. Are you really so indifferent to the fate of books? You said the other night that you love Nabokov. Wouldn't it be a bad thing if people stopped reading Lolita? I think people who are likely to appreciate Lolita will read Lolita. I don't care about the rest. I mean, I don't care what they do for fun. It flashed through Nate's mind that Hannah's position wasn't very feminine. She sounded more like an esthete than an educator, and women, in his experience, tended by disposition to be educators. He felt intuitively that she was paraphrasing someone else. A professor, Nabokov's lectures on literature, and that that someone was a man. You're saying most people are Philistines, and no amount of education or cultural outreach will change that. Not exactly. I mean, who even says Philistine anymore? You know what I mean. I don't think they are worse people because they don't like novels, if that's what you mean. You don't? They could be, I don't know, scientific geniuses or Christians who devote their lives to charity. I don't see why being a person who reads novels makes me or anyone else superior. Do you really mean that, or are you just playing lip service to the idea because it's politically correct? Oh! (laughs) Uh. Hannah laughed, and her cardigan fell open, revealing the contours of her breasts through her t-shirt. I mostly mean it. I try to mean it. Nate realized he was having a conversation with Hannah. That is, he wasn't going through the motions of having a conversation with her while privately articulating her tics and mental limitations. 
When it came to dating, his intelligence often seemed like an awkward appendage that failed for the most part to provide him with whatever precisely was wanted. Dry, cynical humor, gallantry, an appreciation for certain trendy novelists, but nonetheless made a nuisance of itself by reminding him when he was bored. He wasn't bored now. Is it snobbery to think that Lolita is better than a television show about pets? It's snobbery to think you're a better person than someone else, just because they don't happen to get off on the world's most elegant account of child molestation. Her eyes flashed in the light cast by the disco ball. Nate suggested they order another round. As the bartender brought their drinks, he remembered something. I didn't know you and Elisa were friends. Hannah looked at the black Formica bar. With her fingertips, she pushed her wine glass along its surface, guiding the glass like a hockey puck on ice. We're not really. To be honest, I was surprised when she invited me to her dinner party. Pleasantly surprised, I should say. This made perfect sense. Elisa wasn't great at maintaining friendships with women. She often pursued new female friends eagerly, but from year to year there was high turnover. Nate didn't think it a coincidence that about half the guests at her dinner party had been his friends rather than her own. What about you? You and Elisa... We used to date. Hannah nodded. Nate nodded back. He suspected that Hannah already knew about him and Elisa. For a moment, they continued to nod at each other. It's great you're still friends. She suggested they go outside for a cigarette. Nate was glad for the chance to stand up. It had been a chilly June. The outside air was cool. He and Hannah stood with their backs to the bar. Across the street, in a brightly lit new bodega, a table was piled high with pineapples and bananas. Its back wall was lined with stacks of Nature's Harvest toilet paper wrapped in bucolic green cellophane. Hannah sifted through her purse and passed Nate a pack of cigarettes. He held the yellow box at a distance from his body, like a teetotaler forced to handle a martini glass. I didn't know you smoked. Only when I'm drinking. She'd kept up with him, drink for drink. That had surprised him. The traffic light turned green. Two yellow cabs with their empty lights on shot past, hightailing it back to Manhattan. Hannah retrieved a plastic lighter. Nate watched as she put a cigarette in her mouth, cupping it with one hand and lighting it with the other. When she inhaled, her mouth formed a small O. Her eyelids drooped languidly. Pleasure seemed to ripple through her. You're like a junkie. Without meeting his eye, she gave him the finger. I just get so sick of the anti-smoking thing. It's so totalitarian. Before he knew what he was doing, Nate leaned in and kissed her. He descended upon her so swiftly (laughs) that she made some sort of girlish giggling noise of surprise come accommodation before she began kissing him back. He felt the cigarette fall to the ground. Her mouth tasted mildly of ashtray. It didn't bother him. He began walking her backward until her upper back touched the brick front of an adjacent building. He leaned into her, one hand on the wall above her head for support as his other moved down to the curve of her hip. Then, abruptly, he felt a tightening in his chest as his body reacted to a thought before it had fully formed in his mind. Without at all wanting to, he had begun to wonder whether this was a good idea if the spontaneous affection he felt for Hannah weren't a signal that this was the last thing he ought to be doing. No. The hand on the wall balled into a fist, scratching against the brick. His other hand found its way to where the small of Hannah's back dimpled and flared into her ass, which was indeed nice, very nice. 
Through his shirt, he felt her hand climbing up his back. He told himself to shut the fuck up and enjoy the moment. I'm falling quickly, baby, catch me while you can I lost my self-control the moment you walked in Like a breeze, I was on my knees, begging for the last call Well, I'll be on that cap, honey, you can have it all you can have it all So lift me up Don't you know I'm a fool for you, a fool for you Help me out Don't wanna waste your time I wanna
This story was an excerpt read by Adele Waldman from her book, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. The music for this episode was composed by Haley Johnson with additional composition provided by Tim Carplus. The song Lift Me Up was written and performed by Haley Johnson, whose music can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your music. Just search for Haley Johnson. This episode featured voice acting from Jared McLean, Erica Mady, AJ Summerly, and Jonathan Miles. Thank you to Tim Carplus of Yellow Room Recording. We also want to thank Kate Moldenhauer from Kill Room Studios and the More Banana Podcast Network for engineering the recording with Adele. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Find us on Twitter at StoryboundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we'll hear a story from Nathan Hill with original composition provided by the infamous Tim Carplus. So I am on the phone with Adele Waldman, and we are going to talk just a little bit about um, kind of behind the scenes, what it was like working on the episode, and what it was like for her listening to it. Hey, Adele. How are you doing? Hey. (laughs) Hi, Jude. Good. Thanks. Um, So you got a chance to listen to your episode, yeah? So I made it through the first five minutes, and um, <laughs> that, that sounds that sounds bad, as if I didn't like it. Um, I loved it. I thought the actors were great. I thought the music was great. It was my own words that I had trouble with. Um, some combination of my own words and my own voice. I found it kind of trippy and hard. I immediately just wanted to pick up a red pen and go back to my book and start fixing things. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, does it? How did it feel actually hearing someone, you know, kind of uh, read your dialogue aloud? Did it? I mean, because I know there. I mean, I know that there were plans in the past with your uh, with your story to kind of adapt it to some extent. So I'm just kind of right. curious what that was, what that felt like. Um, I thought the actors were great, and it's funny. It, it forced me. It challenged this idea I've always had that um, sometimes when we're watching a movie or TV show and we criticize the acting, I often think like, is it the acting or is it the writing? Like, is it, is it impossible for actors to convince convincingly act bad lines? Um, <laughs> sure. So I've, I've often thought that. And then I felt myself cringing when I heard the actors doing the dialogue because I was so afraid like, Oh, if this doesn't come off right, it's not on them. It's on me by my own theory that I've been espousing for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, w- I was relieved I w- every time I felt like, Oh yeah, this is, this sounds natural. This sounds like something someone might say. Um, I felt like I felt just relieved. And also like they did a really good job. Like they totally got what I was, they did the inflections exactly as I'd hoped. Um, so that was fun. Um, that's cool. That's good to hear because they were very. Um, it even in the studio they were trying to figure out like, oh, do, would this be pronounced like this or this be pronounced like that? Or <laughs> just trying different inflections. So um, that's fun. And but you know, well, it's funny. I've heard. I've never been able to bring myself to re- to listen to the audiobook recording of my book. So it's out there, but I've I've never heard it. But people have told me things about it. Um, 
one of which is that the street that every New Yorker knows is pronounced Houston Street. Apparently, in the audiobook, the, the narrator calls it um, Houston Street. So, <laughs> funny. Um, so, yeah, as, you know, not those things don't always get done um, as the author intended. I yeah, no, they don't. They don't always. Um, I'm curious because your book was. Um, I mean, it was published in, I'm trying to remember the actually, it was 2014, right? It's 2013. Yeah. 13. Um, and so it's been kind of a long process to see it, you know, come this far. And I'm just, I was, you know, I haven't gotten the chance to ask you this before, or but, you know, where did this book like come, like, where do these characters come out of for you? And like, why, why were you wanting to write um, really for Nathan? Like, why were you wanting to write in Nathan, in Nathaniel's head? Um, it kind of took me by surprise that I wrote this book from his perspective. I think for a long time I'd wanted to write a book that sort of took dating seriously as a, as a human drama that didn't kind of treat it as the stuff of a romantic comedy or as chick lit that didn't necessarily have an easy pet ending, but that treated it the way I think 19th century novels tend to treat um, dating, although at that time it was called dating it was courtship but but it's the stuff of a of a serious um adult book that um is sort of psychological and, and philosophical and serious i had wanted to do that for a long time i felt like there were aspects of sort of modern romantic relationships that i didn't see treated with the care that that i would have liked to have seen and i felt like certain male authors like in the philip roth mold um, might have written honestly about their experiences, but it didn't capture elements of um, of my experience or I felt like the experience of my women friends. Um, anyway, I sort of say in all this, the natural approach you would think would have been to write about it from the perspective of a female character, but I found that I started this just, it was just kind of an idle idea. Like, what if I try writing from the male perspective? And I it really seemed to take off. I think it gave me a little bit of distance instead of um, writing from the perspective of a narrator who was like a thinly veiled version of myself. Mm -hmm. I clearly wasn't Nate, and I think that distance was a little bit freeing. Um, and then, and I think it turned out, I've sort of found as I started to do it, that I liked the, the sort of dramatic tension you could get with the close third person narration that I felt like I could both um, record Nate's thoughts and by writing them in a certain way with a certain level of, of implicit irony could also sort of critique them mm -hmm. so the simultaneous like trying to to be fair to his thoughts to get them relatively accurate but also to be sort of criticizing them and being aware of when he's being sort of sexist or selfish um, mm -hmm. I, I think was really made, made the writing fun well, I think it helps, too, that Nathaniel is sort of eerily self-aware of those things as well, even though they're, you know, those those mechanisms, those internal mechanisms are there for him. So while there's a sense of irony to it, even though you have that distance that you said mm -hmm. was helpful, I feel like the narrator, you know, you going through through that omnisciently, like it, it still feels it, you, it still feels empathetic toward Nathaniel. That's that's great. I mean, I wanted very much to be fair to him. I wanted there to be like not a thought in the book that someone, um, that a real person 
he was not a serial killer or psychopath would think. Um, you know, I, I didn't want it to just be like, uh, just excoriate this bad boyfriend kind of exercise. Um, I, I wanted, I wanted it to sort of to critique his behavior, but, but critique in some ways the best version of it, of like, he's, he never wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to just go fuck with women's heads today. He's just, <laughs> sure. Yeah. He's just a, person living his life but yeah. i think nonetheless it doesn't mean his actions don't have consequences for other people that have generated a wide variety of reactions you know, some people find nate much more sympathetic than others and by this point i'm used to reactions all over the map in terms of whether they relate to him or think he is the devil yeah i'd be very curious you know that's why i was excited to uh work on this episode in the first place just because i was excited to be able to hear it in your voice even though it's, you know, because you're because you're narrating for Nathan, you're narrating for this this male character, and I and I and I enjoy doing a little bit of that flipping. It's it's really fun, um, and I also am intrigued about because I know there was you know in the past. I, I mean, from what I'd read, you know, there was some talks of there being like a screenplay or adaptation right. of, of this, and so to me, I was like, well, if this isn't going to appear, this isn't on the screen, but it gets to still appear in our heads and still have some sort of you know, um, do you do you have a preference, or is there some? I mean, obviously, your your natural medium is writing, so right, right, yeah. Um, there was a screenwriter attached to the project. I'm not really up on all the Hollywood language. I try to keep a distance from it, but it <laughs> the the book had been optioned for um, for a while from a producer who had brought on a screenwriter, and I really like the screenwriter, and I this will speak to the degree of um, consciousness. I actually, he wrote a 17 page, oh, what do you call it in screenplay terms, a, a development, like a, um, like a treatment, a treatment, treatment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I read most of it. <laughs> I sort of skimmed a little again cause I felt self-conscious, but I thought, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought he had such smart ideas for how to um, translate it translate things that are largely internal into um, action. And I thought it was really smart and really witty. Obviously that it never came to fruition. And I think there had been some, whether a screenplay or a series would be best. And then it, in the end there, nothing came of that one. So um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know what will happen. I, I try to kind of stay out of it for the sake of, I don't know, something, I feel like if I got too involved, I'd get too invested and, um, yeah. and that wouldn't be good either. So it's easier to just keep my distance. I think that's good. I mean, I also, I think that distance is nice too, because it keeps you entrenched in, you know, um, obviously where, uh, where you feel, you know, your most kind of natural, like where, like where your role is. Um, right. and really your role is just, it's, you know, as, as that writer getting to jump into these characters heads, spending a lot of time, um, with them, you know, living with them. And I, are you, are you working on anything at the moment? I am. I'm working on a, a novel. Oh, great. I'm, well, I'm super excited to hear that. So. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's nice to hear. It'll help me get through the rest of the day writing wise. <laughs> well, I have quite a few friends that you know. Uh, I, I have a good friend of mine actually had recommended uh, your book to me a little while back, and I I just and it was her favorite, uh, one of her favorite novels she'd ever read, and it 
became one of my favorites. So, um, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, but I appreciate you uh, having this talk with me. And well, and I really appreciate you doing this. I'm delighted. And um, as I said, what I can't wait to listen to the rest. <laughs> um, and sure. please don't interpret the fact that I only got through five minutes as anything other than I abnormally self-conscious and um, I just wish I could continue to edit but I thought you guys did a really phenomenal job and thank you so much for including me The Podglomerate A Sonic Universe